All right. Um, good morning, everyone. Uh, we'll start off right off the bat and dismiss the kids who are here to Aletheia Jr. Um, the two volunteers are on my right. If you don't know me, I, haven't, I enjoy meeting everyone, but if you don't know me, my name is Vinay, um, and my wonderful wife is April. We also have a one-year-old, one year and two months. Um, he's kind of, he's, he's a lot of fun, and he has the crazy curly hair, which is nice, but you can um, come introduce yourself afterwards. We can get to know you. That would be great, and you can play with Kian, who's really fun. But today, we kind of have a heavy subject, I'll say. At least the start of our passage today is really heavy. Um, before, I enjoy doing this before starting with the passage itself in James chapter 4. I always enjoy sharing a story of some sort. Today, I have a historical story, which I'm not, I'm not typically a history buff. I don't love history that much, but I kind of ran across a story, and it fit well with what we're talking about today. But... Um, I'll kind of set the stage for you. So um, it's the year 100 BC, so it's a long, long time ago. And in 100 BC, it's relatively close, a lot closer than we are right now to the coming of Jesus Christ and the disciples and all of that that went down. So it's the year 100 BC, and we're in the Mediterranean Sea, so over to the east of us. And the Mediterranean Sea at this point is kind of overrun with pirates, so pirates roam around the Mediterranean. They wreak havoc and do a bunch of stuff. They're stealing goods, and they're um, ransoming people, taking them and holding them capti captive and waiting for um, a ransom to be paid to release them. So in 100 BC, I don't know if it's exactly the year, but around that time, they capture this 25-year-old young guy, and it would be this group of rowdy pirates captures this 25-year-old guy, and he would be unlike any other 25-year-old um, they've ever captured. Uh, so they capture this guy, and right off the bat, this guy's kind of bossing the pirates around. So he falls asleep on the ship, and they're making too much noise, and he wakes up, and he tells them to be quiet. And he's like, shush, shh, I'm trying to sleep. And he's the captive, right? And they're, they're doing training exercises, and he looks at them, and he's kind of laughing at them, and he's trying to teach them how to do their job better as pirates. And he's bossing them around. Once they get to this island, he, they hold him captive on the island. Um, he practices and writes poetry, and he writes speeches, um, and he practices it in front of them. And when they laugh at him, he yells back at them and calls them illiterate and imbeciles. So this captive is kind of crazy, right? He's a little cuckoo. Um, and then the funniest thing I think I read about this was they were or they were talking amongst themselves to determine how much they should ask for his ransom. So they, they negotiate and they ask, um, they say we should ask 20 talents for his ransom. I should have figured out how much that was, but that's a pretty good amount because that's, yeah, a lot of silver. But um, yeah, so they ask for 20, they say we're going to ask for 20 talents. He laughs at them and he's like, you should be asking for 50 talents. So for some reason, they listen to him, and they go out and ask. And throughout this whole endeavor, as he's a captive, um, he's, like, constantly threatening them, and he's, he's lording over them, bossing them. At one point, he even says, I'm going to have you all crucified, which is pretty shocking. So at this point, um, these pirates leave, and they go ask for this ransom of 50 talents for this guy. And this is where the story takes a turn for the worse. Um, they end up getting the 50 talents, and they release this 25-year-old guy. And it turns out the 25-year-old was Julius Caesar. 
So they, yeah, they made a huge mistake. They had no idea who they had. He ends up going back to Rome, and then he gathers a naval force together, and he goes back to that island, and the pirates are still at the island. I don't know why they're there, but he goes back to the island with this naval force. He captures all the pirates, takes them back, and crucifies them in Rome in front of everyone. So he wasn't joking around. The reason why I share this story is just it, it really pays or it benefits all of us to know what exactly we're dealing with. You know, it would have benefited them to know that that was Julius Caesar that they were messing with. And in our passage today, James is going to show us that it benefits us to know that what we're messing with is sin and the weight of sin and the gravity of sin isn't something to be messed with. So I feel like that's maybe something that we've forgotten a little bit, especially with our culture and our society the way things are, the way things function, we get a little bit desensitized to sin. And unfortunately, um, we forget. And today, my goal is to bring back the remembrance of what sin is and the gravity of, of sin itself. So we're going to look at um, James chapter 4. We'll start off with verses 1 through 4. And before we read those verses, um, Dan did a great job last week showing us the end of James 3. And at the end of James 3, we see this um, division between the, the wisdom of the world or earthly wisdom and the wisdom from above, heavenly wisdom. And the wisdom of the world is really, in James chapter 3, it's marked by unspiritualness. It's unspiritual, it's demonic, and it's really marked by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. That's what the wisdom of the world looks like. And then the wisdom from above um, in contrast, it's pure, it's peaceable, it's open to reason, it's full of mercy and good works, and what it's really marked by is meekness and humility. We see that in James chapter 3. As we transfer into James chapter 4, they kind of overlap a little bit, and we see that wisdom in action now. So in James chapter 4, we're going to see the wisdom of the world in action and what the consequences are, and then we're going to see the wisdom from above in action and what the consequences are. So we'll read verses 1 through 4 of James chapter 4. And fair warning, Charlotte already read it. It's very shocking the way that James talks to the people. Um, he says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God." So we see some shocking claims here, and James is really eating at his, his readers, who are mostly Christian, but I feel like this is applicable across the board. Whether you believe in, in Jesus Christ or not, um, this is applicable. So right off the bat, we see three very clear um, descriptions or consequences of sin. So first, we see in verse 4, that sin makes us an enemy of God. And this should be the most shocking thing to all of us. I think just the way the world works, even for us as Christians, it's not necessarily as shocking as it should be. Um, but 
that the second thing we see is that sin makes us an enemy of others. And the third thing that we see is that sin makes, a, makes you an enemy of yourself. Um, so as an enemy of God, in these verses itself, we see that God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble, though. And that opposition to the proud, um, the best way to describe it is we're in strife with God or um, when we choose to sin or friendship with the world, when we choose to be a friend of the world, it's an act of war against God. Um, and with others, we see that it causes quarrels, it causes fights. Um, I think Dan did a great job of, it was an honorable mention last week of social media. And um, I want to second that social media is, is, some, is a playing ground that you need to be extremely careful and intentional with. Um, I think social media, the best way that I thought to describe it was it's fine-tuned to make you covet. So most social media is fine-tuned to make you covet. There are, there are like genius people in the background creating algorithms, figuring out how to make you covet. And I don't even know what an algorithm is. And I don't think, I don't think anybody here really knows what an algorithm is. But there's some genius guy or girl creating this algorithm, causing you to covet. And it's designed to make you fall, essentially, make you sin. Um, and in 2013, myself, I had a vivid realization of this. Um, in 2013, I was at work, and I think either I was just being lazy, or maybe I didn't have as much work to do, but I just decided to hop onto Facebook, and I was scrolling through Facebook, the, the feed. So this is nine years ago. I don't know what other social media um, networks there were, That's if that makes sense. But I was scrolling through the Facebook feed, and I realized I was seeing people doing um, crazy things. I was seeing images of women also that were provocative. I was seeing all sorts of things that kind of drew my affections and my attention. And I realized in that moment, it was through the power of the Holy Spirit that um, this, was, this was a pretty evil and wicked thing that was in my life at the time. And it grabbed my attention. And I decided that that, that day, I remember that day in particular, I decided to delete Facebook off of my phone. And since then, I haven't it's been a blessing because I never got into the progression of social media and how it got worse and worse and worse a little bit. So um, I'm not saying that you can't have social media, but if you are um, using social media, I would be extremely careful and intentional about how you use it. And I would ask the Lord to reveal in your heart whether your heart is being pulled in one way or another towards sin or what it might be, whatever it might be. But you see that sin really causes you to be an enemy of others. Um, and then finally, the most shocking of them all, I think, is that, and this would be shocking whether you believe in God or not, sin causes you to be an enemy of yourself. So we see in the very first verse, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So within yourself, you have this war going on. You have your passions competing with each other, and it's the root of all wickedness. It's a root of all quarrels. It's a root of all fighting. It's a root of insanity, pretty much. Um, so ultimately, um, the call today in these first four verses um, is that sin is not to be trifled with. It's not something that you should mess with. If it's lingering in your life right now, if you're struggling with sin right now, um, if you're apathetic to sin right now, uh, the call is to just put it to death. 
Um, put sin to death. This is your calling to stop right now. Put sin to death in your life. Don't let it linger. Um, and I pray that by the power of the gospel of the kingdom of God, that would be possible for us, for us all. Um, and it even gets worse. So we see that sin makes you an enemy of God. Sin makes you an enemy of others, and it makes you an enemy of yourself. But it gets worse. Um, as we continue in 1 Peter 2, verse 11, we see this powerful verse. It's the next page in my Bible. Peter's right after James. Um, but if you turn to 1 Peter 2, verse 11, it says, Beloved, I urge you, Peter's urging them again to, he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So we see that sin makes you enemy, an enemy of everything in the world, and we see that sin wages war against your soul. And, and I don't know if that's, that might be kind of lost on us a little bit, just because we don't necessarily understand what the soul is. But the Bible isn't extremely clear on what the soul is, but it's very clear that the soul is extremely important. Um, and salvation and everything Christ did on the cross was for souls. So we see sin wages war against the soul. I think one of the best quotes that I've heard, or simplest quotes that I've heard, is from George MacDonald, and C.S. Lewis quotes him also. But he says, he says, um, you, sorry, you don't have a soul, you are a soul, and you have a body. So the soul is this eternal aspect of all humans, um, that's, that's imperishable. Uh, our bodies will fade away, our bodies will die, but our soul will continue to live. Um, and it makes it an extremely important battle, battlefield that we're fighting on. Um, the soul is the mind, the will, it's all of the emotions. In Psalm 103, it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. So that your soul is extremely important for God and is and it's the thing that sin fights against. Um, so we see the battleground that we fight upon is a battleground that's eternal. Um, it's a battleground that's not temporary. It's not physical. It's not against flesh and blood. Um, and then even more than that, sin wages war against a soul. Um, sin also is waiting. So we see sin wages war against a soul, and sin is always waiting. Um, sin is malicious. It prays like a lion. It's waiting to pounce. It's waiting to get you. Um, actually, if you have that picture that I sent you, throw that up. Um, so I have this, yeah, picture. So that's Kean, my son. That's when he was two months old, actually. You can't read that. But now he's a year and two months. But um, I had probably the most vivid realization that sin is malicious and sin is waiting, prowling like a lion. The enemy is prowling like a lion. Um, after he was born, actually. And two months in, right now, he kind of sleeps through the night, which is a blessing. He sleeps from like seven to seven. I don't know if he'll continue to do that, but it's really great. But it took a, it was a long road to get there, or a relatively long road to get there. At two months, he wasn't doing that. And when he was born, I remember many nights, I think we think that he probably had colic because he would cry for hours on many night, like three hours straight or two hours straight or something like that. And it was crazy. Um, but there were many nights where April herself also, we had to deal with this. We had to wake him up and we had to feed him at night. But then when we tried to put him back to sleep, it was a huge problem. And he would just kind of cry in my face. So 
we, I, would try to, <laughs> I would try to put him back to sleep, but he would just be screaming in my face, right? And this would happen for a very long time. But if you know me at all, I'm generally a pretty even-keeled person for the most part. Um, and I'm pretty laid back. April's pretty laid back to you. So this was totally unexpected. When he started doing that, um, I remember the first time it happened, he started doing it. I felt like a deep-seated anger well up in my heart. So I felt anger and I felt frustration. And it was like I was really mad. Like I wanted to punch a wall or something like that mad, which is was totally unexpected because I felt like I had complete control over that aspect of my life just because my personality isn't like that at all. But it was totally unexpected and it wasn't, and I'm telling you, it was a real anger. I was like, I think when I told other people, they were like, oh yeah, like sure, yeah, you're totally fine. And they didn't really care because they, kn they knew me. But I remember going to GC and I would tell the whole GC, I'd be like, guys, like I'm feeling this like great anger. And it was towards this little baby, this cute baby. <laughs> I was feeling this like hot anger against this little baby. And thank, thank the Lord, the GC, I mean, everyone is praying for me and April prayed for me and I was praying a lot myself, but the Lord's um, resolved that in my heart. But I kind of feel it coming back a little bit now because now he's a year and two months and now he like directly disobeys. And that like is bring, bringing back the hot anger when I like tell him, tell him something 30 times. And then he'll like look at me and smile and like do put his hand in the trash again. <laughs> but yeah, I'll work through that. We'll work through that in the coming weeks. But yeah, so sin, we see sin wages war against your soul and sin is always waiting. It's waiting to pounce, to prey on you. It's malicious. It doesn't has no good intent. Um, sin is the root of all brokenness. It's the root of all quarrels. It's the root of all fighting. It's the root of all strife. We see that in Proverbs, um, that selfish ambition causes, causes all contention. Um, sin's the root of death, all death. So it's the death of relationships, the death of peace, the death of joy, the death of good, the death of life itself. Sin is the cause. So again, cut it out of your life. There's no room for us to mess with sin. There's no room for it to linger in our life. There's no measure. There's no amount of sin that's okay for us to have in our life, it needs to be cut out completely. So in these first four verses, we have this, this powerful bearing down of sin upon the world and upon each of us, and it seems heavy and it's a great weight. Um, and it really, it really sets the stage, I'll say, for the following two verses um, that we'll see. So we see that in, in the following two verses, I think one of the most powerful transitions in Scripture that I enjoy um, is verse 6 itself. We have sin bearing down with its weight on the world, on all of us. Um, and then in verse 6, we see, but he gives more grace. So first, I kind of have three sections to this, if you like to divide your notes into three sections. That first was the pain of sin, and now we're going to talk about the power of grace, and then we'll move to the purpose of grace. I did three Ps for people that like that stuff. <laughs> Pain, power, purpose. All right, fun stuff. Um, so now we move to the power of grace. So, so you have sin bearing down with its weight on the world, with all its pressure, even on our lives today. But then verse six, but he gives more grace. Um, it's kind of like, I imagine it as there's complete darkness 
and then you see, and you're completely lost. April has a great story about this where they took a hike. They thought it was, they thought it was a, a circle, but it was one way and they kept walking and then the sun set and then they had to walk all the way back in complete darkness and like the rangers were looking for them and all sorts of stuff, but fun stuff. But when, when our sin itself or the power of sin and the weight of sin in this world, I, I view it as complete darkness and, and impending doom almost. And then you see like a bright light shine in the darkness. Um, it's kind of like um, being parched, completely parched in a desert land. And then you get water or you find water. And I think probably the most apt description of grace coming into the picture to us is right now, it's kind of like if you were walking outside middle of the day for two hours, and then you open the door to that store that has like their AC blaring, and it like floods over you and it feels so good. And then you go inside that store and you're like, ah. And then you don't want to really buy anything, but you're just like getting the AC, right? That's, that's what it was like. So there's complete darkness, and then you have a light come in. And the pain of sin really makes grace so sweet to us. So we see in verses 5 and, and 6, it says, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So Jesus Christ um, is this movement of grace that comes into the world. We see it in John chapter 1 that the word becomes flesh that he brings grace and truth, and he's that grace himself. And um, in Isaiah 59, um, we have these powerful verses. If you've never read through Isaiah 59, um, it's, a, it's a great chapter. It's catered towards Israel and what they're going through, but it's still relevant to us today. But in Isaiah 59, we see at the beginning that our iniquities have made a separation between us and God. So sin has made a separation between us and God. And then we see the consequences of sin in Isaiah, that it's wicked, it's evil, there's all sorts of wickedness going on. Um, and God, when he looks at it all, it, he's unpleased that there's no justice available. He's unpleased that he can't see justice. He's unpleased that there's no one to save the world from sin. So at the end of Isaiah 59, it actually says that he is so unpleased that he decides to stretch his own hand out. He decides to bridge the gap himself and to provide justice and to provide um, a relief from sin, which is in the form of grace in the person of Jesus Christ. And just to see how powerful um, the arrival of Jesus Christ is, like that light and darkness, the AC and the Florida heat, just to see how powerful it is. I, I always remember these three passages that show the progression of how we are, our relationship with God. If you want to write them down quickly, it's Exodus 3, 1 to 6. Um, and then we'll read through the first two. The second one is Matthew 17, 1 through 8. And the last one is Revelation 1, 9 through 17. I would just go go home and read through that and really get it. We'll, we'll read through the first two because they're relatively long. Um, but we'll turn to Exodus chapter 3. So we're going to see what the arrival of grace, what the power of grace does for us as Christians and does for the world. So in Exodus chapter 3, 
we see the story of Moses and the burning bush. It says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro. I told Charlotte this earlier. Jethro, a great baby name, Gabe. Remember that. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west, of, west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, a bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. God says, Moses, Moses, do not come, come near. And Moses hides his face because he was afraid to look at God. Now let's fast forward to the arrival of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 17. We have the transfiguration happening here. Um, that's a whole different sermon if you want to look up what the transfiguration is. But um, we're going to focus on the last few verses. But I'll read from the beginning. It says, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. This is kind of funny. This verse is really funny because Peter... Peter just casually sees these two people who are supposed to be dead. And then he says, and Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here. So he's, he sees two people that are supposed to be dead. And he's like, hey, like, you guys want me to make you tents so you can chill out? So he says, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. That was Moses' response. And Moses' story ended there, right? They, he fell on his face. He was terrified. But their story doesn't end. They fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Praise the Lord, right? So the coming of Jesus Christ goes from falling on your face, being terrified in the presence of God, to Jesus, the mediator between God and man, picking you up, saying, rise, have no fear. You see it in Revelation 1 as well with John he falls on his face. Jesus says, rise, fear not. So we see that Jesus radically transforms, transforms our internal, sorry. Jesus radically transforms our eternal circumstances. He turns the tide of the war that's waged against our very soul. And 
And now grace and the rival of grace and Jesus Christ draws us out of sin and wickedness and this maliciousness, bitterness, and selfish ambition. It draws us out of that wickedness and earthly wisdom, and it draws us into light, into heavenly wisdom. It draws us near to God. In the following verses in James, we see that we're able to draw near to God. We're able to resist the enemy. We're able to flee from him. We're able to um, humble ourselves and submit ourselves to God and repent. Um, Grace just opens the door for drawing near to God when we couldn't before, and it, it opens the door for repentance when there was no, no way to access the Lord before. So he gives more grace. And we see a really curious and interesting verse here in verse 5. We see the truth that God is jealous also. So we saw in previous verses that bitter jealousy marked, marked earthly wisdom, but now we see that God is jealous also in verse 5. So imagine the, the best way to describe this, that God is jealous too. He's just not filled with bitter jealous, bitterness and selfish ambition. His jealousy isn't filled with those things. The best way to describe this is imagine two enemies um, in the heat of war itself um, if two enemies ran into each other, they would, de- they would desire at that point to kill the other enemy before they themselves get killed, right? So the desire is death for the two enemies. But God is so unlike us and so different from us that he can have emotions like jealousy, anger, and they can be righteous instead. So his jealousy is such that um, even though he's an enemy of us in our sin, when he comes to us, His desire is never for death. He desires that none would perish, but instead his desire is for life. And that's the difference between God and man. He desires life. Although we are enemies, he still desires life. He has has this hot jealousy towards us. And the reason is, is that his jealousy really demands his glory. So his jealousy demands his glory. And then his jealousy also demands our good because it brings about his glory. And and he's, this is all possible because, um, I don't know if you guys, I think Daniel has talked about this previously, but um, many people might say God's a narcissist for desiring all the glory and all the honor. But the thing that sets him apart, typically narcissists desire these things and they don't live up to the hype. But God alone lives up to the hype. God alone is good. He alone is righteous. He alone is perfect. And therefore he, his his desire for um, glory and honor can never be narcissistic. It's always pure. It's always great because it leads to good of others while also the glory of himself. So his jealousy isn't filled with bitterness. It's not filled with selfish ambition. Um, The opposite is true. He's slow to anger. He's plenteous in mercy. He gives more grace. So today, I don't know what you're struggling with in your life, um, I don't know what is vying for your affections or what's tempting you or what part of this broken world is just pressing on your heart. Um, I don't know if you're facing jealousy or envy of others, coveting others and what they have, desiring that, but I can tell you that he gives more grace. I don't know if you're um, depressed or facing depression, but I can tell you that he gives more grace. 
I don't know if you have broken relationships in your life. We ourselves have many broken relationships that we strive to repair, but I can tell you that he gives more grace to that. Or I don't know if you struggle with laziness. I know I do at times, and procrastination. I can tell you that he gives more grace. Um, And sexual immorality and pornography, I don't know if you indulge in those things, but I can tell you that he gives more grace. Um, And I don't know if you struggle with fear, but I can tell you he gives more grace. There's greater grace. He gives more grace, grace upon grace. Um, And in Titus chapter 2, we'll read these verses. In Titus chapter 2, we see a great summary of all that James is talking about in verses 11 to 14. If you have a Bible, I would turn there. In Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So we see again that grace appears in this world like that light and darkness Um, like water to the thirsty and the parched. Grace appears in this world, and it's a beautiful and powerful thing, and it brings salvation to all, to souls, to all souls, and it trains us to renounce ungodliness. So we really have this powerful truth about grace, and the final part of the sermon, I just wanted to focus on the power of grace Um, And the power of grace, we see it in Titus 2 really well. And if you read through Titus chapter 3, you'll continue to see the same um, story of grace and mercy and loving kindness appearing out of nowhere, as if it wasn't there before and appears in this earth. Um, But we see two two big things that Titus 2 shows us that grace, um, one, saves our soul, grace brings salvation, And two, that grace trains us. It trains us to godliness. So the power of grace is that it saves us and that it also trains us. Um, And those are two separate things. For by grace we are saved, but also by grace we can continue to be sanctified. So the purpose of grace are these two things. And we're going to focus on this second half, um, that grace trains us. We see a qualifier in the following verses in James. And we'll read the final six or seven verses of James chapter four from six to 12. And I'll kind of break those down for y'all. So in these final verses, it says, but he gives more grace. Grace has come into the world. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge." 
There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So in these verses, and even in the previous verses, we see, two, we see some very clear things about grace. We see um, in verses 7, 8, 9, 10, we see that there's a huge qualifier to grace, receiving grace and interacting with grace um, and its humility. And in, in James chapter 3, we saw that earthly wisdom was marked by wickedness. It was marked by bitterness and selfish ambition. Um, but heavenly wisdom was marked instead by humility. And humility is such a great requirement to receive great, great grace. And when we have the humility um, before the Lord, we're able to do these things like cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, we're able to repent, we're able to turn away from sin, to flee from the enemy, um, to, to resist the devil so that he will flee from you. We're able to do these powerful things. And the calling is to have this posture of humility before, the, before God. And then we also see in James 4 that um, we need to have this same posture of humility before man. So we need to have this vertical posture of humility and also this horizontal posture of humility. So we have this this posture of humility is the key um, to, to receiving more grace, to receiving great grace. Um, and there's really, as I was studying through this, and over the years, I feel like there's really only two very practical ways to exercise this posture of humility and um, for grace to train us. Um, to renounce ungodliness. There's, there's really only two ways, and it's the famous children's song, read your Bible and pray every day. Um, it's through prayer and it's through the word of God. The two ways to really access grace and there are two ways to gauge um, where your selfishness is or if you are do you have selfish ambition. Um, we'll take them one at a time. We're trained by these two, prayer and the word of God. Um, for prayer itself, um, we see in the beginning of the chapter in verse 3, 2 and 3, it says, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Um, so we see two reasons why we kind of don't pray, and it's because of our own selfish ambition, because of sin in our lives. I think oftentimes I don't pray, one, because I just don't don't ask for things. I, I feel like we're immensely blessed, especially in our cultures and societies. Um, we're immensely blessed, so we don't have to depend on the Lord for things like food and clothing and a home. We typically are blessed with those things, and we don't really pray about those things. So I, I definitely don't ask. I don't come to the Lord in this posture of humility and ask him for those things. And then I have also caught myself a lot of times praying prayers in a selfish manner in which I desire something for myself. Like, for instance, when Kean was screaming in my face, my prayers are, I pray that Kean would stop screaming, right, so that I'm good to go. <laughs> and then he just goes to sleep and we're all like living our life. But um, typically... And many times in my prayer, if I peel back layers, is just covered in selfishness. And we ask wrongly, and that's why we don't receive what we ask for. Um, but prayer is this great opportunity to exercise a posture of humility. 
instead of having this selfishness, we can exercise this posture of humility, come to the Lord in prayer and ask of him, um, and we can turn our eyes upon him. Prayer is really this opportunity to align um, our will with God's will and to connect those two. But I think our struggles with prayer are because we don't necessarily um, value his purpose over the plans that we already have. Shout out to my wife for telling me telling me that statement. So that's quotation marks April. Um, but we definitely have this struggle with thinking our plans are greater than his purpose. Um, so if your posture is pride and selfish ambition, um, I, I am calling you guys to, and all of us, myself included, to really make prayer a pervasive part of your life. It should influence every part of your life. It should be there constantly throughout your day. Um, Aletheia itself has prayer at GC. If you're not connected with the GC, it's a very practical way to just get into praying if you struggle with doing that yourself. Um, and then there's also prayer on Friday night. I think there's a few who are faithful there, but um, I'm, I'm sure they would just enjoy your presence. Um, yeah, he's cheering in the back. I'm sure they would enjoy your presence on Friday night to just pray. April and I, we actually pray for a specific country once a month on Monday night. There's one tomorrow. If, you're, if you want to join, it's on Zoom. Um, feel free to reach out to us and ask us, and you can join and pray for this country. It's Bangladesh for salvation of souls there. Bangladesh, side note, has the largest number of unsaved and unreached people in the world. Um, so we have this... We have this calling to put on this posture of humility in prayer um, so that it might train us to godliness, train us to good works, train us to be zealous for those good works. Um, and then I think the bigger, the bigger one is we have this call to um, just depend on the word of God. So let's follow this quick um, trajectory of how important that is. So we saw in 1 Peter 2 verse 11, that sin um, and the passions of the flesh wage war against our very souls. And just a few weeks ago, Kevin actually talked about James chapter 1. Um, and James chapter 1 in verse 21, we see the solution right off the bat. It says, therefore put, away all, um, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So we see the solution, sin wages war against our souls. The implanted word, this, is able to save your souls. But it ends in John chapter 5. And this is one of the greater verses of, of all scripture. John chapter 5, verse 39. It says, you cert this is Jesus performing miracles in front of the people, and then he's talking to them. And he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. You search the scriptures and because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Guys, if this is not a daily part of your life, if you're not considered a student of the word of God, there's something very wrong. This needs to be a daily part of your life. This needs to be in your heart. You need to be reading it. You need to be understanding it. You need to be asking questions 
um, talking with others about it. It needs to be in your heart and it needs to consume your life because it bears witness of Jesus Christ. There's no other way to know Jesus Christ than by the word of God. So you have this, you have these two powerful measures of grace given to us, prayer and the word of God, and they're completely necessary for training. Um, the word of God, I think in particular, we have a reading plan with Aletheia, if you guys want to join that, or I have um, some books that I help develop that teach you how to study the word of God that you could use if you're interested in that. Um, but um, it's just, it just needs to be a daily part of your life. We have prayer, the word of God, um, and Billy Graham has this this really powerful quote. I don't know if y'all have ever um, watched any of Billy Graham's quotes um, or sermons or whatever it might be. He talked to millions and millions of people, but we went to his, um, he has like a big museum just outside of Charlotte, and it was a really powerful museum to see what the Lord did through his life and others that were part of the ministry. But Billy Graham says, who art thou, Lord? Jesus Christ, are you, are you who you say you are? He says that we all need to ask this question, who are you, Lord? Jesus Christ, are you who you say you are? So if you believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, and this isn't part of your life, I don't know if you really do believe that. So we have this calling to be humble before the Lord, to just be shaped by grace, to be trained by it so that we can be godly. Um, we have this calling to just put away the pain of sin, to put away sin. It makes us an enemy of God, an enemy of others, an enemy of ourself, and to instead put it away, put it to death, repent from it instead of that, um, to turn our eyes to Jesus. Um, the, the sweet song, we sang it last week, um, it says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So if you turn your eyes upon Jesus, the things of this world will grow strangely dim. They won't be sweet to you anymore. They won't be precious to you anymore. But instead, the word of God will be sweeter than honey. It'll be more precious than gold. Um, and I pray that for all of us, that we would just turn our eyes to Jesus and let the things of this world grow strangely dim. Um, so right now, we actually have this powerful opportunity to do that, um, and it's communion. And if you don't have communion, I would grab it right now. So communion um, for believers, if you're not a believer, we ask that you don't partake of communion. Um, but for for us who are believers, we have this opportunity to look on on Jesus's face to, to look to him. And as I was thinking through communion and how it related to James chapter four, I was struck by the thought that um, I pretty easily receive grace in my life. Um, I sin a lot and I quickly and easily receive grace. But I was struck by the, the question, um, grace is often easily received, but um, was it easily given? was grace easily given. Um, it wasn't easily given for God, and it wasn't easily given for his son. Um, it wasn't easy um, to pay the price for grace to be given to the world. It wasn't easy for him, for Jesus Christ to be mocked on that day. It wasn't easy for him to wear a crown of thorns and to have blood pour from his head. It wasn't easy for him to be whipped and beaten and spit upon 
It wasn't easy for him to bear the weight of a cross. And it wasn't easy for him to be forsaken by the ones that he loved. It wasn't easy for him to be forsaken by God the Father. It wasn't easy for him to bear the weight of sin for our sake so that we might be able to access God and draw near to him. It wasn't easy for grace to be given to us. So don't take it easily. Remember what Christ did on the cross. Don't take advantage of grace. Don't forget. I just wanted to end before, and the band can come up. Um, I wanted to end before um, we pray and take part of communion and read Hebrews chapter 12, which is a well-known passage. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. It comes right after the hall of faith, as we call it, which has a bunch of great men and women of the faith. Um, But it says, Hebrews 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood.